Restaurant Unstoppable episode 723 with Jason Dady. You know, they called us and after Luke left and said, hey, we got this great spot. You want to come take a look at it? We looked at it. We're like, it's impressive. Okay, what's the deal look like? Okay, let's negotiate this. Let's look at it. Second generation spot. Um, it's all happened organically. Are you ready for it factors, success stories, failures, and bombs of restaurant industry knowledge? Then join Eric Cacciatore and today's incredible guest as they share what it takes to become unstoppable. Let me tell you about a little green book that will change your life if you're anything like me in your strengths or with people, not numbers. It's called QuickBooks for Restaurants, a bookkeeping and accounting guide by Zach Weiner. This is the back office restaurant accounting guide you've been searching for, and trust me, it will change your life. Ultimately, Zach shows owners and operators how to create the accurate financials and reportings that will enable them to make better informed, data-driven decisions to learn more and to get a cost copy of Zach's book, head to ZachWeiner.com slash unstoppable. That's Z-A-C-W-E-I-N-E-R.com slash unstoppable. And if you use that link, my listeners will save 50% off a one-on-one consulting call, but you got to use that link or use promotional code. Don't stop. Find out why Toast POS is the number one recommended restaurant POS system on Restaurants Unstoppable. If you're going to survive this upcoming recession, you have got to adapt. And you can't just adapt. You have to adapt fast. With Toast's cloud-based restaurant POS, your system will update to evolve along with changing industry trends and guest expectations. To learn more, head over to toasttab.com slash unstoppable. And because you are Restaurant Unstoppable listeners, for a limited time, you will get one month free POS software, three months of free digital ordering tools, and 50% off implementation to ease the impact of COVID-19. This is a value of $1,000, but you've got to use our links. What's going on, Unstoppables? Real quick before I let you know what we got going on today, a reminder that Toast POS is going to be paying us $2,500 every time you use our link. So after taxes, that's about $2,000. We want to split our profit with you. We want to share our profit with you because we know you need it right now. And we also want to just give you as much incentive as possible, frankly, to use our link. So, uh, we're basically matching toast. Uh, they're going to give you up to a thousand dollars worth of incentives. When you use that link, we're going to match it and send you a check for a thousand dollars after splitting our profit with you. But here's the thing you got to let us know. So it's not enough just to go through and use the link um, because we don't, because of confidentiality, we, we don't necessarily know what you're doing and toast isn't necessarily allowed to let us know. Uh, so shoot us an email, Eric at restaurant unstoppable. Let us know you're using our link, and when we get paid out, we'll confirm with Toast, and we'll we'll send you that check for a thousand dollars. And I hate to complicate things, but uh, this is the best way we can guarantee we we are able to send you that check for a thousand dollars. It's just good communication. All right. So today's show we have a good one. Uh, San Antonio legend. Jason Dady is joining us, and today we talk about weaving your personal life into your professional life, speaking up for yourself when you know you're being mistreated, which I think is just kind of a hot topic right now, being mindful of your energy, especially your enthusiasm, 
taking a job, not because of the money, but because of what you're going to learn, then paying attention when you're there, taking advantage of the tools online. There's so many tools online to learn how being a mentor and being generous with your team will help strengthen your relationships with them and help them stay loyal to you. Tracking and knowing your costs, uh, documenting communication to keep people accountable, setting roots in a city that is on the come up and getting, you know, riding that wave uh, and not necessarily going after the big cities, but looking for where there's opportunities in smaller cities. Uh, three partners being the sweet spot when it comes to partnerships, specializing in second and third generation operations, how to open a restaurant with only $50,000, the secret to scaling organically, and lastly, converting a restaurant concept that has not been working, how to revamp that space and retain the space, but put a new concept in it. This is a really great episode. I'm super excited to be sharing it with you. Here it is. Enjoy. With excitement, allow me to introduce to you today's guest, Jason Dady. I should say Chef Jason Dady. Chef, are you feeling unstoppable today? Every day? All day. Yes, I love it. So, Nebraska native and Texan-raised Jason Dady has deep roots in the restaurant industry. He studied hospitality management and culinary in Texas and California, respectively. After graduating, he sharpened his skills in Napa Valley before returning back to Texas, where he opened his first restaurant, the Lodge Restaurant of Castle Hills in 2001. When one restaurant was not enough to hold his ideas, Chef Dady opened a second restaurant in 2004. And today, uh, Chef Dady Restaurants includes... Uh, Trey Trotteria at the San Antonio Museum of Arts, uh, Two Bros Barbecue Market, and Sister Restaurant Alamo Barbecue Co., B&D Ice House, Range, and Chispas. Chispas. That's, I said it right. Chispas the second time. Uh, Taco and Margs. I cannot wait to get into your story. But let's get that motivational, inspirational ball rolling with a, a success quote or mantra. What do you got for us? Uh, our mantra is uh, make it happen and finish strong, and we try to live by that every day. Make it happen and finish strong. How does that resonate with you? Really pull back the layers on that. Uh, to me, make it happen in this business is there are no excuses. You have guests that are coming in and sitting down, and they are you know they have an expectation, uh, and you've got to make it happen. So uh, it doesn't matter if there's a pandemic and people still want your food. You've got to figure out a way to make it happen and pivot towards delivery or you know maybe you um, are 86 uh, an ingredient but somebody still wanted gnocchi um, and you only have a half hour to get it done uh, and finish strong is about making sure that you you know you take pride in what you do to the very last plate to the very last dish to the very last guest uh, to the very last second and that's what really to me uh, is made us successful I love it, man. And when I think of just getting it done, it's just that mentality. Like, like it's never going to be perfect. That's one thing that's really cool about the restaurant industry is that you're always having to think outside the box because anything could happen. But you have to figure out how to make it right, right? So, like that that mentality is so significant in this industry. Where does it make sense to start telling your story? Wow, that's a great question. I mean, I think um, you know I don't have to completely dive into the childhood side, but because uh, it's not that very exciting. You know, I was born and raised in uh, Central Nebraska with. Uh, a grandfather that was a butcher, um, and my other grandparents still to this day, my grandfather just turned 90, uh, and they still run and operate a little bar, uh, you know, what we'd consider a dive bar as a kid. It was more of a tavern. Maybe my grandma was cooking. And so I grew up, in some sense, I grew up in the hospitality industry, and so, um, and uh, moved to Texas in 1989. 
Um, started working in a restaurant right out of high school and then uh, went to Texas Tech University and got my degree in restaurant hotel management. Okay. So reflecting back, I mean, growing up in the industry, having uh, grandparents that owned restaurants, and I know you're, you had a, fa- a grandparent that was also a butcher. Any right. key elements, any key influences, anything that has like really resonated th- with you that sticks with you to this day? I think when your grandparents are 90 years old and they still get up every day to go take care of their customers, it says a hell of a lot about... Uh, what was important to them and what probably uh, not knowing at the time, but is, is something that I've taken, um, taken a part of how we are. I think, are you know, you, they still get up every day and go take care of those guests. Still to this day, they're still kicking with their restaurant to this day. Still run and operate that bar. That's it just incredible. blows my mind. So let's pull back, like knowing who they are, knowing what matters to them. What are the biggest lessons they taught you? Uh, I think my grandmother, it was just about hard work. You know, it's, you know, I remember like them not taking enough vacations and not doing the fun stuff because they were so focused on making sure that their regulars had a place to go. Now, do I agree with that now? Maybe not. You know, I think that the industry's changed and, you know, finding a hobby and, you know, preserving your own mental health is incredibly important. But um, I just think being around that and knowing um, that that was important to them. Um, it certainly had an impact on the way that I approached the restaurant industry. So paint the picture of what hard work is, because I feel like that's a relative statement. What's hard work for yeah. me might be a different story yeah. for you. So give me an example of something that you witnessed your, your grandmother do that just was like, holy shit, well, like I she th- gets it. I think, well, I think it's more about the sacrifice. Mm. You know, I think that's a great question because it will, you know, I was actually just talking to my director of culinary operations yesterday about, um, it's not hard for me to do this job. I'm mentally built for it. I'm physically built for it. I've watched my grandmother and my grandfather into their nineties do it. So that's incredible. I don't have excuses about being tired. I mean, and so, but that's easy for me. And in today's world, it's changed. And a lot of people, they only want to work 40 or 50 hours and that's a full deal for them. And Mm -hmm. um, it's been an interesting way to adapt for me to try to learn how to be more patient because I wasn't raised that way and I certainly didn't have that mentality and I still don't I mean I still work six days a week most weeks Mm. you know because that's just how I'm personally built so to kind of answer the question like what does hard work mean for me I think hard work is having the dedication and the sacrifice to to push through when you don't want to the dedication and the sacrifice to push through even when you don't want to give me an example of something you sacrifice to really set in stone that level of commitment. Well, I think it, I think it's very similar to what you were saying is like hard work's different for everybody. So I think the word sacrifice is very different for people. But you know, for me, I know that, you know, I have three children now. And so, you know, I have to constantly make decisions on what's more important, a $10,000 catering or my daughter's dance recital. Mm. Um, and is it the right decision or the wrong decision or does it matter? And, uh, you know, that's real sacrifice when you're looking your children in the eye and you're putting your business before them and they don't understand. Uh, and then other times I'll do the opposite. I'll say, screw it. My team can handle the catering and I'm going to go be a dad because 15 years from now, that's going to be more important yes. than a catering that nobody's going to remember. Yeah. And what you're going through right now is why I think we should all, even as small business owners, treat our small businesses like big businesses so we can take a, 
a night off. Right. You know, and, and if, if the business is dependent on us, then we cannot do those things. Right. Absolutely. Um, and listening to you talk couldn't help but remind me of a recent conversation I had with Howard Bihar, uh, who was the president of Starbucks when they really were scaling fast. And, uh, he just says, he's like, I don't have work life balance. I just have my life's work. Right. And I, I feel like that same thing coming from you. So what, what is your life's work? Like if you could distill that, uh, I know that at the point where I'm at now and probably, since my children have been born and it's not the it's not said often enough that I really don't care if our restaurant has an off night if if I'm at home with my kids like mm. it's I'm, it's it's far more important to be a great dad to me than it is to be a great chef or to be known as a great restaurateur. Did you always feel this way? Or Absolutely this- not. Mm. I mean, I mean, in my early 20s, I opened the lodge when I was 24 years old and I was a maniac, you know, coming from San Francisco and coming to San Antonio and having the ego the size of Texas and, you know, really trying to push the forefront of what we wanted fine dining to be for this particular market. Um, yeah, I mean, we had an amazing kitchen, but it was a very intense kitchen and you know, I can just remember one day waking up and being like, yeah, like, this is stupid. Like, why am I so angry? Why am I so intense? Like, we're not enjoying the process. Um, and and then, you know, a few years later, you know, having children certainly changes that yeah. significantly. What's it all worth if you can't enjoy it? Absolutely. Right? And, like, why do we work? Like, we forget that at the end. It's the end. Yeah. Right. So you might as well enjoy the journey. Right. Um, that's what I'm that's what I'm picking up from. You. Yeah. And it's I think it's becoming more. It's becoming more regular for chefs to realize that. I think that. people are communicating it more yep. than ever. I think it's because the industry is opening up. We're saying, why are we competing right. against each other? Why are we trying to outwork each other? Yep. We're all suffering as a result. Why don't we just say, like, why don't we collectively come to an agreement right. that it's okay to work only 60 hours right. or 55 hours, right? Like, Yeah, I mean, it's it's the double-edged sword, right? Yeah. It's like, it's, it is your livelihood, mm-hmm. and you do got to do, it's a business, and yeah. you do have to make money and then yep. at the end of that you have to make a profit and you know i hate to see a market where you know i was talking to a chef friend of mine just a couple of weeks ago and he's like why can't we all just come to an agreement that we have 15 dishes on our menu and that's it right right the agreement is all chefs 15 dishes <laughs> done and so that way you don't get in that situation where one chef's doing 28 dishes and in a way it makes it look like you're not doing the same amount as maybe the other chef. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if it means shit or not, but um, it's an interesting point. Yeah. It's an interesting it's an interesting start of conversation. But at the end of the day, too, I think chefs in history have had the tendency to do shit to impress other chefs. Mm-hmm. Ego. And, and that's it. And it's the, you're only trying to impress your other chefs, and you're not really doing it for any other reason. And so... Um, and to be quite frank, none of the other chefs give two shits. And so <laughs> it's been kind of an interesting dynamic looking yeah. at that. And, and as an older, wiser man now, maybe of of looking back on but that. But this is the whole point of Restaurant Unstoppable, to let people who are getting into the industry know now that there's a better way. Right. Absolutely. Bef- you know, and I, and thank you for getting into that. So, um, bringing it back to your story, we're only just talking about your, your, we haven't really dove into your story yet. We're just reflecting on the lessons you've learned from witnessing your, your grandparents do this and, and learning it the hard way yourself. But, um, you knew at a young age that you wanted to be in this industry. W- what point were you committed to that? Um, I got my, my first real job out of high school. I, I mean, my first job was in a grocery store, which didn't really count, I guess. Um, 
bagging groceries. But my first job out of high school um, was at a restaurant called CJ's Clubhouse Grill in Coppell, Texas, a little suburb of Dallas. And I was a server, walked in the door, had never done it before, but it was natural. Um, and they were running a contest that the server with the highest sales for the whole month would win a trip for two, all expenses paid to wherever, Cancun or something. Okay. It's probably 18 years old. <laughs> that sounds amazing. And I, you know, I grew, grew up playing sports and a pretty competitive guy. And I was yeah. like, man, I, this is a free trip. And all I got to do is do my job. And so, um, I was hooked and I was hooked because I was winning a free trip, but I also just had a passion for it. Um, and I liked it. I liked the interaction. I, you know, I grew up around people that cooked and it was a, a kitchen. It wasn't a fast food place. And, um, and so I pretty much knew right then and there that, um, that I loved it, but I didn't know that was a career. Went to Texas tech, um, out of high school after my first, I stayed home the first semester and moved to tech the, the second semester of my freshman year and was in, um, PR and marketing. And I thought I was going to be a, an advert. I thought I was going to be an advertising or public relations. And quite frankly, I didn't even know what the fuck that meant. <laughs> um, but it sounded cool. Um, and I thought the the girls would like it. What year is this when you're out of, uh, when you're out of college 95. or out of high school? Yeah, 95. And, uh, the second day I got to Texas tech, I met, uh, my who's now my wife we've been married almost 24 years in two weeks will be 24 years Damn, um, met her on the second day i was there and um i just wasn't really all that interested in the classes i was taking i went and saw a counselor and they were like what do you like to do i'm like well i work in restaurants i was like well you can we have a rim program a restaurant degree and i was like well, i didn't even know that was a i didn't look at it as a career at that point in time which was interesting because i loved it but i didn't yeah. think of it as a college career yeah and i went over there and met um a guy named ben go and who was the the um i guess the counselor of, or the dean of that section and he was like yeah here's your schedule for the next three and a half years you're done you know you just kind of walked me through what my career was going to be and i was about a year out from finishing uh, I worked real hard. I mean, I, I ended up getting a really great job. I was a full-time salaried manager at Joe's Crab Shack while I was at Texas Tech, at, you know, at the time owned by Landry's. Um, I think they're back with Landry's now. But um, I was fortunate that, again, the hard work never bothered me. So I was – my last three semesters, I took 18, 19, and 20 hours, those three consecutive semesters as far as hours in college. And I was a full-time salaried manager at a, at a $3.5 million a year restaurant you know, running a crew of 65 people. So, Jesus. um, but I was laying in bed one night with my wife and, uh, we got married when we were 20. So, um, a long time ago and I would never let my 20 year old daughter get married now. I don't know what our parents were thinking. <laughs> you got lucky, man. It's not everybody gets to find the, the right one so early in life. But. Yeah. I, I was incredible. <laughs> <lucky. laughs> um, but we were laying down and I was always cooking for friends. I mean, I, I was, that's what I did. I would yeah. just cook for fun. And I'm loving what you're giving us. I'm going to help you out a little more. I, um, I remember like my famous dish that my friends loved. I made like a creamy pico de gallo sauce over steaks and we just thought it was the greatest thing ever. Um, but we were laying in bed watching, um, TV and we were flipping through and it was the Jay Leno show. And there was a chef that came on, uh, Emeril Lagasse. And this was like right at probably the beginning phases of mm-hmm. Emeril being yeah. Emeril. And he did a dish called Turbo Dog Chicken. And I'd never seen him before, never heard of him, never even really knew, to be quite frank, I probably didn't even really know what chefs really did 
in on that level of being a train a formally trained chef. And I remember just jotting down that recipe the next day, went and got all the ingredients, wanted to make this dish, um, which was basically fried chicken fingers and like a Creole cream sauce. Okay. Um, But it changed my perspective on what I wanted to do. And I said, listen, I've always said, you know, I'm in the RIM program. I'm going to be in restaurants. Yeah. And I want to open my own restaurant one day. And I said, well, if I'm going to open my own restaurant one day, I I love to cook. I do it all the time. I've been around it my whole life. Um, I need to be a chef and that way I have all cause I've all was always front of house. So I knew front of house. That was easy. That was nothing. And so by learning how to go to col- or, you know, so I started researching culinary schools and, um, I didn't want to go to the East coast. I don't know why I just, for whatever reason, I was like, yeah, I don't want to go to the East coast just probably cause I was a little uneducated and I, I thought the West coast seemed cooler and more <laughs> hippie like, and, uh, went and visited the California Culinary Academy in San Francisco. And two days after my wife and I graduated from Texas Tech, we got in a U-Haul and drove to San Francisco. I love this. And so I want to pull back a couple layers on that. Uh, first, starting with uh, Landry's. I mean, we can't overlook that incredible restaurant group right. here in Texas. It's been around forever. Uh, staple in Texas communities. What did you, what were the biggest things that, that you learned from that group um, as far as operations? And It, it taught like, me so much. I mean, me- it was... It was um, it was critical to my success. It really was critical. Um, I was a front of house manager, but really I probably was more acting as at, at a minimum, I was the assistant general manager and probably was more the general manager. My general manager, um, wasn't all that great. Um, and saw how passionate I was and kind of just let me take the bull by the horns per se. So, uh, it taught me so much about, uh, inventory, um, about reporting, about, HR about all the things that quite frankly 19 and 20 year old kids just don't learn and I was just submerged in it and it was intense and it was a busy busy restaurant I mean in Lubbock Texas at the time it was the hottest place in town I mean three and a half million dollars a year on the loop of 1604 you know or whatever their loop was called at the time 360 um it was it was an incredibly valuable learning experience that I certainly would not be who I am today without that experience. And also because my boss was so critical, um, not in a good way, like not in a good work environment way. So like standards critical. Yeah. Like if I just, but also just like, like hazing, Mm. you know, and I was so young that I tolerated it. Like the money was so good to be, I mean, I was a salaried manager running a crew of 65 people like i couldn't not afford i could not afford couldn't not afford the job if yeah. that makes sense but you know if he came in and a light bulb was out um would just lose his shit you know and call me at seven in the morning on sunday and be like you know what are you doing this light bulb's out you know well we had five thousand christmas lights hung in the restaurant of course they're gonna <laughs> go out you know and um but it also taught me yeah. how i would not treat my staff mm. And, um, I still carry that with me today. Now it did teach me to be very critical in a sense of, you know, I try to teach our, well, the thing he taught me that was valuable was, um, you walk in the restaurant the same way every day, you have a routine, you walk the same path. And then that way you can see everything and mm-hmm. you see things that other people just simply don't see. And so we try to teach our staff to do that. So he taught you how not to do it. So in that he taught same, me not, he taught well, me how not to, to treat people. Exactly. Right. Um, thank you for correcting me. Uh, so it, what I was going to ask, how would you do it today? Knowing what you know, evolving the way you have evolved in that same scenario, how would you have done it? 
In what sense? If I was in his shoes? If, if he found, or if you found, if you're in his shoes, if you found a light bulb out in your restaurant today, yeah. what would be your approach to correcting that behavior? I think it's more just simple one-on-ones when you come back to work. You know, I mean, was it critical for me to get out of bed to come up to change a light bulb um, just to prove a point? You know, no, because all that ended up happening is me ha- losing respect for him. Yeah. Um, and... Um, you know, it got so bad that I literally went to his house one night and said, I'm done if you don't fucking change. What happened from that point? He had a basically a breakdown at the thought that I was going to leave and it, he would be exposed that everything completely changed. Damn. It just took me standing up for myself, uh, which was not easy yeah you know and so i think it's like a like a, like a double-edged le- lessons here right. right one um i mean well three really three like it's he did teach you standards he te- he did teach you that you got to care about those little things he also taught you there's a better way to communicate that right. you have to care about those things and i think the the, the underlying lesson here is that you got to communicate right. when you're not feeling like you're being seen the way you want to be seen. Like, Absolutely. And, and there's a lot of power in standing up for yourself right. and doing it in a way that is respectful. Right. Like approaching and speaking to yeah. this person face to face. Like you could have just bashed that person right. behind their back. So what is your advice for somebody who's like, fuck yeah, I'm listening to this right now and I'm not being respected. I want my, my manager to respect the value I bring to the team. Like right. how do you approach somebody in a way that won't get you fired, but in, in fact, make your relationship stronger? Um, you have to be willing to lose it all, mm. you know, and that's the hardest hurdle to get over. And that's probably why most people do keep their mouth shut and they, they don't stand up for themselves because you're afraid of the repercussions. Um, but what I learned is that by finally mustering up that confidence and having that conversation that he was forced to realize how much power I really did have. Mm. Um, and so my advice would be, you have to be willing to walk away, uh, but you're going to be okay. And a lot of times, most of the time, um, it's kind of like the schoolyard bully. You know, they just pick on you and pick on you. And the first time you bop them in their nose, they're kind of they have the tendency to to take a step back and and maybe rethink the the repercussions themselves. Um, so it it really taught me more than anything. It taught me um, to treat your people with respect and dignity um, because that goes so much farther. And, you know, for me and my business model, culture is everything. Mm -hmm. Um, Without the culture, um, you know, I've got employees that have been with me all 18 years. Yeah. I've got, you know, 15 year employee. I got 13 year employee. I got, you know, I'm, that's a statement. I have a lot of double digit employees and, um, and a lot of six, seven, eight, nine year employees. And so that's something we're incredibly proud proud of but i don't think i would have gotten that philosophy without the situation that i was in so there was definitely a silver lining and being treated like shit for two years yeah chef jason i'm loving this man i, could, I feel like i could hover here for like another half hour and just pull back <laughs> layers but there's so much more to your story so moving forward you mentioned uh emil lagasi in this moment had like a, a tipping point re- action or reaction on you or effect on you what was it exactly that made you tip what, what what, what pivoted inside of you in that moment to make you all of a sudden want to pursue th- this like culinary I, world? I think it was his energy. Mm. You know, this was at the the peak of you know, bam and yeah. look at me, this is fun and 
um, you know, it's like, holy shit, like that's, I love to cook and, and I'm kind of outgoing and, uh, that looks amazing. And I never really, I never connected the dots. I always looked at, you know, having a dream quote in parentheses dream as a 18 or 19 year old kid of saying, Oh, I want to open my own restaurant. I didn't know that chefing was the way to go. Cause at the time it really wasn't, mm-hmm. you know, and, and, and I always, you know, I've always said that Emerald was the one that made our industry cool yeah, and made it, um, gave the role respect, made it, gave it respect and, and empowered chefs to do better and to be treated better. Uh, and have more creativity and do all those things that uh, for many years it probably was n- not that way. Yeah, and just the power of enthusiasm too in that moment. Your enthusiasm, your energy has such an impact on people. And when you brought that up, I was thinking of Johnny Caraba, another Texas restaurateur over in Houston. And he said, it's like you have to be so mindful of the energy. Whenever you walk through that fr- that front door, it's all about who's the most enthusiastic. Right. Or wh- whatever energy is going into the room, whichever, en- like it could be negative energy Absolutely. or positive energy, but whichever direction it's greater, that's going to win. And you have to be mindful of that. And you can pull, you can sway people with enthusiasm and positivity. Absolutely. And that's kind of what I was saying earlier. It's, you know, I was very intense coming back. I mean, I, you know, the kitchens I worked at in San Francisco were very intense kitchens. Mm. And this was back before anybody gave two shits about the way you treated line cooks. Mm-hmm. You were a line cook. You didn't yeah. like it? Get the fuck out. Because there's 15 line cooks standing at the back door that wish they were working in here today. Um, and so I was also brought up in that environment. And... You know, you get a, you know, working for who I worked for at Joe's Crab Shack, um, I had a pretty thick skin going into San Francisco and, you know, and I didn't know shit about cooking. I knew nothing, but I knew how to get a job because I knew how to interview. Uh, I knew how to sell myself. I could also say, listen, I have a college degree. I, yeah. I, like, I'm not some chump off the street. Like, I'm, I'm literally taking five steps back because I want to learn this. Yeah. And, um, and, I oh work. my god! You dropped a goal, dude. Like, there's, there's so many things I want to pull back a layer. <laughs> One, uh, knowing how to sell yourself. Yeah. I know I would love to pull back a layer in that. And the other thing is being being willing to take five steps back so you can take leaps and bounds forward mm-hmm. later on. I don't think people realize that sometimes you got to slow down to speed up. Right. You got to you got to sacrifice to to get a better opportunity where there's more of a ceiling for you. Right. Yeah. Um, so, so real quick, how do you sell yourself? Like what advice do you have for somebody who's going on a job interview? Like how do you sell yourself? It's about knowing what, well, Hey, it's about knowing what they want to hear. You know, there's, there's, there's a science to that. I knowing guess what the person interviewing you wants to hear. Right. Um, I mean, I got hired, um, the, the job in particular that I'm thinking of, I may have two stories about San Francisco working, but one in particular was at Stars Bar and Dining, which was a super famous restaurant. Um, Jeremiah Tower had just left and was kind of going through a slight rebranding. And a new chef was coming in, and I interviewed uh, with the chef de cuisine. And I had never really worked in a professional kitchen ever. I, and the whole time I was at Texas Tech, I was always front of house, um, high school front of house. And, um, but I went in and said, listen, man, I have a college degree, and I'm going to do what you tell me to do. I'm not going to try to do it anybody else's way. I'm a sponge. I'll be here early. I'll stay late. I'll work off the clock. I don't care. I just want to learn. Um, and they were like, you're hired. And I got put on the line, um, on the hotline, or hot apps, but it was the hotline, without ever having any kitchen experience. Mm-hmm. And two kids that I went to culinary school with that had plenty more 
kitchen experience started on pantry. Yeah. And they're like, how the fuck did you end up on the hotline and we're on pantry? I'm like, I know how to interview. I, yeah. in, I interviewed what they to 150 hear. people over the last year, you yeah. know? And so, uh, but I also meant what I said mm. and, you know, that's a big part of it. You can't just go out there and tell them right. what they want to hear and not deliver. You got to back it up. And you got to know, but you also got to know what. I mean, I was always the first cook in the door. There, you, you, and that goes back to what we were talking about earlier. Like that. Oh, you can outwork me. I'm like, you're not going to outwork me. But I also feel that way today. Mm-hmm. You can't outwork me. You, I, that's just ingrained in my head. That's my grandma getting up every day and going like, you're not going to outwork me. I'll be there before you. I'll stay later than you if that's what it takes. And but. Um, if you're listening to this, Grandma, thanks for making an example. <laughs> I, I actually, I told her, I was like, Grandma, if I'm doing what you're doing now, when I'm 90, I was like, I'm gonna pull you back out of that grave and smack <laughs> you around because it's insane to be doing this that. This is impossible standard, Grandma. You know? But at the other flip side of that, that's what motivates her, yeah. and that's what she loves. And it's your you life's know, work, right? So much in my family want her to stop or quit, and I'm like, absolutely, and I'm like, absolutely not. Like that's what she lives for. She loves those people at the bar. Like yeah. that's what she loves. You know what's funny? Because that you say that, because Howard Bihar, bringing it back to him, my life's work. When he retired, he's like, "What's life all about?" Yeah. It's like, and then he, he it clicked for him. He's like, "My life's work is about serving others and, and, and bettering others." So he was able to get it beyond it because he could, he could he could continue his life work. His, his wife's work isn't defined by the restaurant, right? right? And that was a big lesson. So, um, okay, man, I'm loving this conversation, but there's still so much to your story. Um, moving into uh, the, the trip out west to uh, California, is it worth hovering over your, your culinary, um, you know, the actual culinary experience as far as your education? Or does it make more sense to talk about the restaurant tours you're working for while you're in I mean, college? I think there's a lot to be taken away from. I, I think it's pretty unique that I went to college first and got a four-year degree and then went to culinary school because i think typically people do one or the other mm-hmm. i was um, curious about that because you studied restaurant and hotel management right. in college and then you went to culinary school right. you like double dip there yeah so it's like i got my bachelor's in in restaurant hotel management which was a great it taught me a lot i mean mm-hmm. it did it it taught me the analytical side it taught me the the finance side even though i was I'm still maybe not very good at that. But. Some things we're just not naturally good at. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but then going to culinary school, um, it taught me the basis of cooking. And I think that's the big argument in today's culinary world is like, well, do you need to go to culinary school? Depends. What do you want? That was my like, next question because you doubled down. Whereas today I would say, I mean, I'm, I lean towards the favor of like go work. Right. And if you feel like you still need it after spending some time, then it's hard to cut you short. Yeah, no, I mean, it's... I don't know the right answer. I mean, Bourdain obviously was very famous for saying, don't go to culinary school, spend two years traveling. And that's a fine plan. Um, there is no right or wrong answer. I mean, there's um, no there's, one way. There's absolutely, some of my best chefs or cooks I've ever had never went to culinary school and could outcook any kid that spent two years doing it. Mm-hmm. So it's what's your sacrifice? What are you willing to put into it? How much are you willing to read? Um, but I do think that what I realized, and you kind of brought it up earlier is about taking five steps back is I realized my very first job in San Francisco was at Jardinier, super famous French restaurant, Tracy Desjardins. Um, I was going to school in the afternoon, so I was looking for a morning job and I kind of the same thing. I went in, I was like, Hey, I'm looking for a morning job. And they're like, we have a prep cook job. Again, I'd never worked. It was my first professional kitchen ever. And I, I didn't even know shit about any of the chefs. I didn't know that I walked into one of the most famous restaurants in San Francisco. I had no um, thing to base that off of. Yeah. 
Um, and Ignorance can be bliss, right? Because maybe you wouldn't have walked <laughs> into that door if you had. I didn't last doing. long. Okay, I didn't last long. I didn't last long for a couple reasons. Okay, mostly because I was like, you know, I was a bottom of the barrel entry prep cook. So it would be taking two cases of arugula leaves and picking the stem off of every leaf, Oof. which would take two or three hours. Yeah. And, you know, I just remember being like, holy shit, I have a college degree. What am I doing? Holy shit, I have a college degree. What am I doing? Um, and then um, there was a pastry chef there. And I, w- I, I would love to know who it was just because I would love to see what he does now. But um, w- I was in charge of straining the chicken stock. Well, being a perfectionist, I would go back there every day and, like, skim it and skim it and skim it and skim it. Well, that that was kind of his back area was the pastry chef. Again, not knowing anything about the political um, landscape of a kitchen because it's my first job. One day he's just like, what the fuck are you doing? What are you fucking doing? Let the fucking stock go and come back in an hour and skim it all at once. Like, And to me, I thought I was doing something great. Like, I was like, man, my fucking stock looks good. I'm mm. skimming it. It looks good. And to him, he's like, you're wait." What he was trying to say is like, what are you fucking doing? You're wasting your time. Yeah. And you're pissing me off and you're in my way. And I just, it was a good eye opener in a way. Like, I, I thought it was crazy. And I was like, God, oh, what a prick. But um, I just remember um, being like, okay, like, I don't have to take this all the way back to square one. I I don't need to learn how to pick stems off of, of, of lettuce. And uh, and so the following weekend, I requested off because my wife's family was coming down. And I said, listen, when I got hired, I said, listen, I, this is the only two days I'm going to ask off. I will never ask on other days. And, of course, a day before, they're like, hey, we need you to come in tomorrow. I was like, listen, I told you when I got hired. And, again, you have to remember, I ran a restaurant yeah. of 165 front of house employees. I have a college degree. I'm like, listen, I was very upfront with you. I said, those are the only two days I need off. I was like, I'm not coming in. It's the one and only time in my life I just no called, no showed. I was like, I'm done. Like, because they didn't, they weren't respecting me. And I had yeah. come off of this job where my boss didn't respect me uh, enough. And I was like, you know what? Fuck it. This isn't the place for me. And so, and I never looked back. Well, you ended up at Stars. So it's not like, a, like, but complete, I, like, right. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, and then so. I ended up at Stars yeah. in a great, situation and i spent almost two almost probably 18 full months there if not 20 months there in the greatest learning kitchen ever with people that really allowed me to to learn yeah and wanted to teach us yeah so distill real quick the the big lesson from that story the the slowing down to speed up or 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 you can make anything from you can, you can take anything out of a bad situation like what was like what was the 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 big message for you i think the big message for me is find a place that wants you that you want to be where you can learn what you want to learn. Okay. For young chefs, you got to find places where you can learn what you want to learn. Got you. You're, and we, we talk about this all the time. It's a philosophical question in today's marketplace in a world where it's frowned upon to ask people to work for free. Um, and it's a delicate argument. I can, I can understand the privilege argument behind it that I can't afford but when you work a job, it's eight hours a day, art more or less, you're going to get out of that job, but that restaurant needs you to get out of it for eight hours. Mm-hmm. If you want a, to, to, to uh, quick or, you know, make it a quicker learning experience, 
invest in yourself. And not enough young chefs in today's world invest in themselves. What's the best way for a young chef to invest in themselves? It, well, in today's world, it's video. I mean, everything you've ever wanted to learn or see is out there. Mm-hmm. Every dish that's yep. ever been made is out there. Do you watch it? Do you pay attention? Are you, you know, I preach all the time about learning via osmosis. Like, I can't stand when a line cook works on pantry for four months and begs to get on the hotline and they get on the hotline and they don't have any fucking clue what to do. I'm like, how do you not know what to do? You've been standing on this station wishing you were on that station and you don't know how much anything. (laughs) You don't know how much goes into that. You didn't pay attention to how much parsley goes into it at the last second. Like, you can learn anything you want today in cooking via the internet yeah, um, and you can learn in restaurants by just watching paying attention just paying attention and saying break it down to what they're doing how how long did they put the saute pan on how long how hot is the pan how much oil did they put in it where did they put the fish did they season it this side up or this side up how much pepper bah, bah, bah. you can do that just by watching this is awareness being self-aware and mindful of the situation you're in and, and making it the most of every moment it's a critical failure of of chefs and, yeah. it, and it creates a lot of burnout because they get frustrated, but their frustration really, if they were to have some self awareness yeah, would be, it's their fault. Yeah. And you mentioned something else I think is worth putting emphasis on that. We live in a time right now where we've never been so fortunate where we can literally learn from the best. Um, look at master chefs. You right. got Thomas Keller teaching what he knows. You got, I mean, there's infinite people, but you get the idea. Like you can literally get influenced by the best in the world and you got podcasts like restaurant unstoppable where maybe they're not teaching you how to cook, but they're teaching you what their values are and their philosophies are and their perspective. And like, that's just as valuable in my opinion. It's, it's more valuable, right? Right. Thank you. (laughs) It's knowledge is power is not a cliche. It's understanding and listening to the real things that matter. The real things that make a restaurant successful, not successful. And, and, And how tasty your seared fish is, is the least important thing of how successful your restaurants. Yes, be. dude, I'm loving this. You know, sometimes I get some, some, uh, a little bit of a hard rap spending so much time in the early years, but I feel like that's when we're formed, you know? And I think these lessons are the ones that, that influence us throughout the rest of life. Right. Um, we, we, is there any other experience that's worth hovering over any other restaurant experience or person in general that influenced you into the person you are today before you came back to Texas in 2001, um, 2000? I, I think the restaurant stars was very formative. I had two sous chefs that were young. I didn't know how young. I mean, I didn't know how young they were now until I look back now. And, you know, I still, you know, communicate with one in particular quite a bit on, on social media. Uh, but my chef there, uh, Christopher Fernandez, I mean, I loved the way he cooked. I loved his food. I loved his style of cooking and it really formed the way that I cook today. And then when I went to Napa, I worked for a chef, David Frakes. And David was amazing because he, and I still try to do this today, probably not as much now as I did for the first 10, to 10 12 years of my career, but he said, hey, man, bring me a list of 15 things you want to learn how to do, mm. and uh, I'll order it, and you can f- fuck around with it, and if it works, we'll put it on, we'll, we'll serve it. And um, I thought that was amazing. What was he doing in that moment? He was the chef of Behringer uh, Vineyards, and he was, you know, cooked very progressive. Gary, he trained under Gary Danko, which was, you know, for me, like 
powerful. I don't know if I communicated that well enough. What was he doing by giving you the oh. opportunity to give you this list? Like, what was the value in that for both of you? Not just you, but both of you. I think he was giving me the opportunity to say, you know, in culinary school, you know, it's not like they teach you how to cook foie gras, you know, like, and I was like, oh, I've always wanted to learn how to cook foie. He's like, cool, I'll bring in a lobe and we'll, we'll do it together. He was giving me an opportunity to learn the things that I wanted to learn, which made that job that much more valuable and um, engaging. But what did that do for him? I think it just, I think it was a mentor, you know, I think, um, I think he was doing it because he knew that I was a young, ambitious chef that wanted to learn as much as possible. And I think maybe he saw a little bit of himself in me. Yeah. And I think in that moment, he showed you he cared enough yeah. to, to, to give you to open that door, right? right? And when you, nobody, what is, what's the saying? Nobody cares how much you know they, know, they only want to know how much you care. Right. Right. And these little things that you do that you can show people that I care will make you show up. I mean, you were already showing up with your best version of yourself, but now, like, what level of like, in, what, like, where did he? What? Pe- how many more pegs did he go up in your book when you opened that 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 doorway for you? He was he was an amazing mentor, mm. and the food was amazing. Now, now, listen, it was also uh, a corporate business. It was a no food cost situation. We made our veal stock from veal breast, if that gives any perspective. Um, so. It was a very unique kitchen, but we were able to order whatever we want, however we want. But we also cooked really true California food. It was the freshest. It was the freshest produce every single day. I mean, just the gardens we had on property. And, you know, I still use a lot of, I think I use a lot of what I learned from him in in today's world. Mm-hmm. What was the biggest thing you learned working in Jeremiah, Jeremiah Towers restaurant? For a little background, if you guys aren't familiar yeah. with that name, he came up under, um, oh my God, of course. Alice Waters. Yes, Alice yep. Waters, Shapeny. Yeah. Yep. That's what, yeah. So, I mean, he comes from himself, great yeah. lineage. So, what, any big uh, impression he made on you on how to be? Not necessarily what to do, but how to be. He, w- he had left right before I got oh, there. Okay. So it was more of us trying to get out from underneath his shadow. Oh, okay. Well, and, well, there's a lesson there. How do you do that? Yeah, I mean, we just cooked our food and it wasn't about being pretentious and it wasn't about caviar and champagne. It was about, um, again, fresh ingredients. And, you know, I mean, one of the most transformative dishes of my life was just you know, we got fresh porcinis and I'd never even seen them. And we just grilled them with a little bit of salt, olive oil, and a piece of garlic toast with like shaved Parmesan. And it was like still one of the greatest things I've ever had in my entire life. And it was a transformative dish in a sense of like being mind blown at that age as a young cook. Uh, And it was something that would never be on um, a Jeremiah Tower menu. Got you. So when did this feeling uh, inside of you start to bubble back up? Uh, when did you know you had enough time in California to, to come back to Texas and start, were you visioning your own concept? It sounds like you always knew you wanted yeah. to open your own place. Um, again, it was always like, we're going to open our own restaurant one day. What did that really mean? Who I don't know. I mean, the way that that, at that time in our life, so many different things could have happened that could have taken us in a lot of different ways. Uh, my wife worked uh, out of college. She was a mathematics major, but she got a job with a, a dot com uh, when we moved to San Francisco, and it was the dot com bust. You know, mm. the big famous just crash and burn. And we looked at each other and we're like, 
we better get the fuck out of here because we're not going to be living on a line cook salary. And so, on the West Coast. And so, <laughs> yeah. in San Francisco, yeah, you know, exactly. and so we made just a conscious decision to say, all right, we're going to move back to Texas. And we moved back to Dallas, which is where I was from. And um, I got a job. I left the kitchen. I that really the piece that I was missing was kind of the financial side. So I'd done front of house management and then San Francisco learning, quote unquote, learning how to cook. And then um, I needed to know how to do like big time finances for restaurants. And I took a job with a restaurant group out of Fort Worth called Riata as the assistant general manager, which was basically their financial manager. And, um, and we moved back to Dallas and hated it and just were like, so what time, what year was it when you moved back to Dallas? Uh, two thousand. So you didn't spend too much time with this restaurant group because you opened your oh, first I, restaurant in 2000. Yeah. I was there maybe six months. Okay. Yeah. So you, they were, I, they were in top of the bank. It's a long story, but they were on top of the bank. One building, it got hit by a tornado it was a big famous st- story. And it basically, they were the only business that reopened in the bank. And then it ended up, the building was like condemned and shut down and tore down. Okay. So I love this, something I'm picking up from your story is this level of intentionality, right? Absolutely. I'm going to learn about the operations. Well, if I'm going to own my own restaurant, I need to know a little bit about the food. And then you went and you learned about the food. You learned a lot about the food. And now you're like, well, I still recognize that I, I know my weakness, which is financials and numbers, but I don't necessarily need to be good at it. I need to understand it at the very least. And it right. sounds like you just wanted to understand it. Yeah, I just looked at I always said I was. I had a puzzle. And that was the last piece of the puzzle that I was missing. And so yeah. I always looked at my career at that point in time as a puzzle of putting it, putting that puzzle together. And if there's a piece that's missing, you know, you keep shifting and turning it and flipping it around until you find it. And then you put it into place. Yeah. And so um, once we moved to San... So then we moved... My wife's family had moved... My wife's parents had moved to San Antonio. And we came to visit. Before, and before we get into yeah. that, I'm real quick. Yeah. Um, what did you learn about financials that this opportunity allowed it, allotted you that you wouldn't have otherwise learned if you didn't take that extra time to, 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 to dive in? I think I've learned more later in it than I did at the time. I didn't really see anything in particular that was blowing my mind. You okay. know, if I were to look back and say, what did I learn? That they counted every single penny down to the nitty gritty. And when I worked there, I hated it. I mm. thought it was ridiculous, you know, to be like literally, you know, once a week they would count every piece of silverware. That's how they were owned by, or one of the partners was an accountant. And so it was a very penny pinched business yeah. model. I mean, we learned from David Scott Peters, the significance of menu engineering and knowing exactly what down to the penny, every item on that menu is including the menu. But you're, now you're saying including the menu itself, right? right? The, every little, every element that goes into the experience, you need to count to track. You don't have to. What, that what happens was, when you do? Well, you have a better chance of survival. Yes. You have a better chance of success when you pay attention. And that's what happens with, 99.9% of chefs that are are unsuccessful in their ventures whenever that that may be in their career is they they don't care about how much things cost mm-hmm. they care about the way it looks uh and they care about what the menu says um but you know it's incredibly important to understand the finances mm-hmm. awesome um any other lessons there before moving on um no, not not from Riyadh. I mean, it was well. I I, I would let me take that back. The other thing that drove me crazy is that we would be, um, at the time it drove me crazy is that we would they only emailed you. 
And so you'd be sitting in a room with five managers and the manager two seats over would send you an email. And you'd literally be like, hey, I'm fucking right here. <laughs> Just ask me the question. So what's the lesson? What's the lesson? How did that leave an impact? Accountability. Okay. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a trail. It's a, no, I asked you to do that and you, you haven't done it. So mm-hmm. it, it held people more. And no, again, he said, she said. It's, there's a paper. Like, like it's, and that's something I, I learned. And I and I I didn't get it at the time. I get it now mm-hmm. as you know the owner of six restaurants and you know twenty five plus management team. It's like you know, hey, did you email it? No, I just told them. Okay, well, if you emailed it, then you could say, well, I asked you to do this on Friday at three o'clock. You said no problem. Now it's yeah. Monday. And it's not done. Yeah, I mean, I think the the equivalent to email today. I mean, email is still a very powerful tool, but. Slack, yeah. right? We're using tools like that, um, for example. But okay, so you're 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 um, actually now is a great time to take our, our break to thank our sponsors, and we'll be right back. Did you know Toast is the number one most recommended POS on Restaurant Unstoppable? I'm sure it has something to do with the fact that more than two thirds of their employees have worked in the restaurant industry. And I'm feeling pretty confident that has something to do with their commission-free online ordering, which is a hot ticket right now, which lets guests easily order directly from restaurants for pickup or contactless delivery to keep revenue flowing during these uncertain times. They even have delivery services, which dispatches local drivers through an on-demand network to keep your community fed and revenue coming. Regardless of the reason why people are recommending Toast, I highly recommend you go check them out during this industry-wide pause. To learn more head to toasttab.com slash unstoppable and because you are restaurant unstoppable listeners for a limited time get one month of free pos software three months of free digital ordering tools and 50 percent off implementation to ease the impact of covid19 this is a value of one thousand dollars one more time that's toasttab dot com slash unstoppable you have to use that link to save one thousand dollars we're back and uh you were just talking about uh how you were moving to san antonio i think you mentioned your wife's family moved out to san antonio and that's kind of what brought you out this way yep yeah i mean we came to visit and we're like wow this is a cool little town and you know we had moved back from san francisco we thought we wanted to open our own restaurant although we literally had no idea what that meant uh, my father-in-law was committed to helping us get started on some level. Um, and he started looking at locations in San Antonio and, um, we decided just to move down here. We weren't happy in Dallas. The restaurant was closing. Uh, my wife didn't really like her job and we said, you know what, let's move down there. Your family's there. Um, and, but really more than anything, it, we realized it was the best city with the best opportunity. Um, Austin was going through its version of a dot-com bust at the same time. Uh, Houston and, and Dallas would have eaten us alive. Um, and we came and visited and just kind of loved the vibe and realized, you know, there's not a lot of competition here for what we want to do. Um, in a sense that chef driven kind of modern American fine dining, you know, it was, uh, Bruce Auden, um, uh, at Biga it was Andrew Weissman at Larev. Uh, it was Mark Bliss at Silo. And that was it. And they were all kind of on this side of town, this kind of downtown area. And so for us, we were like, man, this is a huge city. 
Um, and we ended up finding the location where, uh, in Castle Hills, where the lodge ended up being. Yeah, and I want to just like pull a layer back on that because um, I feel like and I see it happen time and time again in all my interviews. Like you go to the big cities, you go to the cities like the San Francisco's, the New Yorks, the LAs, the H- or wherever, and you surround yourself with the greatest. You take that level of execution, that knowledge, and you go to a city. In 2001, it was San Antonio. San Antonio has since come up. It's a great culinary city. But there's so many small, smaller cities right now. And I feel like with the, the direction the world's going and people, more people working remotely, there's so much opportunity in these, opportunities in these small towns. Yeah. So you don't have to go to the big cities to open a restaurant to be successful. You're actually more likely to be successful where it hasn't quite gotten there yet and being the first of the scene. Uh, do you agree or disagree with no, that? No, absolutely. I think what we realized is like, hey, if we're successful, this is these are will be deep roots. Yeah, you know, we we will build our family here. We'll raise our family here. We're we're getting in at the ground level. Yeah. We looked at that as a great asset for the city, um, and quite frankly, we're not um, that opportunity still exists in San Antonio, which I think is its real its real beauty. That's cool. Um, so. You you open your first restaurant. Take us through that process of selecting the location. Uh, this is your. I mean, I know you've opened a lot of restaurants prior to this. Going to people who were opening restaurants, so you got a lot of opening restaurant experiences. Yeah, I mean, in fact, I had opened. I mean, Joe's Crab Shack in Lubbock, I opened. Yep. Um, Stars Bar and Dining, I I opened. Um, uh, it was I had opened, I think, three restaurants prior to opening my own, and so. Um, I knew what it took. I knew the nuance. I knew how to get in there and get nitty gritty and put in elbow grease. And so um, it certainly made that a lot easier. But we had moved down here uh, to write a business plan and then uh, pitched it to some banks, um, got a small business loan. And um, the lodge, my father-in-law just was driving around town, saw it was an old house. You know, it was an old house in the middle of Castle Hills. The city of Castle Hills is named after the house. It sits on two and a half acres. Um, and we said, you know what, this could be a pretty cool restaurant in an old house. Um, it was a son of a bitch to maintain. Uh, we were there for almost 12 years, I think 11 and some change. And, uh, a lot of construction, a lot of, you know, real quick, we learned, we opened one month after September 11th. And so, um, when you're doing all this planning and all this organization, and then all of a sudden such a, you know, tragic thing happens, um, and then we opened October sixteenth, two thousand and one. Um, had a nice little, nice little start to it. I mean, nobody knew who I was. Twenty four years old, yeah. you know. And that blows my mind, by the way. Like, opening a restaurant younger than the age of twenty five, like the 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 pressure of that just blows my mind. Well, and it was also completely unexpected. I mean, nobody. I mean, I literally would go talk to guests, and they literally thought I was bullshitting them that I was the chef. I mean, it's just. I can't tell you the thousands and thousands of times I heard in my career, you're the chef. <laughs> like, I'm like, yeah. Um, and so, um, and then that July, there was a big, that first July, there was a big flood here in San Antonio, big monster flood. And we lost like the first two and a half weeks of July. And I mean, that right out of the gate just crippled us, crushed us for months. Um, and it just shows how fragile the restaurant industry, but if I were to say, like, looking back, you know, I feel like that's why we've been able to kind of navigate this kind of COVID experience is because we were there. We've been through that. We have 
grinded it out. Like it wasn't any, it just took us back 18 years to be like, all right, like pull up your bootstraps and get down and go. And what was the opening quote? You make it happen and finish strong. Yeah. I mean, it, that's just the reality of it is we had no choice. We were 24 years old and I, my brother was 22. My wife, my wife and I were 24. My brother's 22. And we were like failure. It just simply is not an option. And there were a lot of days where it was just me and my brother in the kitchen and maybe my wife and two servers. And that was the shift, yeah. you know? And so I feel like opening a restaurant in 2001 isn't quite the same today, but I feel like a lot of it is the same. Like for example, financing isn't probably quite the same. Right. Um, but how did you get the money? Cause I mean, you're young, you didn't have yeah. money put away. I'm assuming. Uh, no, my, my father-in-law uh, was kind of a silent partner and helped give us uh, a, just enough money to put a down payment on our small business loan. Okay. So I think we had a $125,000 that we put down and borrowed 400 or 450 okay um somewhere in that range and so we did everything for i think $600,000 okay so how do you any advice on how to navigate going into business with family because you said silent partner was yeah. there an operations agreement does it get weird with family and operations absolutely. agreements absolutely yeah absolutely i, I mean it's it's funny because people look at me and my wife and my brother now and they're like oh my gosh you guys all get along so well i'm like yeah like We've been down every battle, you mm-hmm. know, we've screamed and yelled and not spoken and, you know, every, every part. So how do you go into business with family is it, you got to just be very careful. And I, and I'll go back to what I said earlier. In a sense, you have to be willing to lose it all, mm-hmm. you know, because, um, it can get ugly and it's, it's not always fun and it isn't always pretty. Um, but if you can bond together and work together and set egos aside, um, which is hard. I mean, I, you know, I know what I want and, you know, we're fortunate now that 18 years into this venture, you know, it's kind of, Hey, there's three of us, you know, my, my father-in-law's really never gotten, he's, he'll throw us some ideas every once in a while, but, um, normally he stays out and lets us kind of navigate the, the path. And so our rule is, Hey, it's two to one who, who's, so it's me and my brother outvoting my wife, or it's me and my wife outvoting my brother, or it's my brother and my wife outvoting me. Well, I think that's a really important number. Like when you have partnerships, um, the, the the sweet spot seems to be three because there's always there's never a tie, right? Right, and I think that's really really important. Um, regarding the operations agreement, did you guys like like any advice on that? Like navigating the actual operations agreement. Um, I mean, we did an LLC. We just kind of all split it up evenly. Okay. Um, I, I mean, it's a tough question because everybody's family is so yeah. different. Yeah. Um, but I would say that, you know, we talk about that a lot of times. It's like we don't have outside partners. Uh, my father-in-law helped us get us started with the first one. Um, he bailed us out uh, on a, an experiment that we did on a restaurant that closed uh, to kind of help get us through kind of a rough time. But other than that, he's never really jumped in there. So... I look at it a lot of times. I'm lucky that I don't have to take anybody else's opinion into the matter. And I'm always very fearful for chefs that um, go the investor route. But the reality of it is that's their best case 99.9% of the time. I mean, you really got to be mindful of that because at the end of the day, when it's somebody else's money, you know, you got to take that into account. I mean, you were fortunate because your investor was family. It seems like it was, you know, he was investing in you and his daughter. He just wanted right. to see you be successful. Right. And he didn't want, he probably didn't want anything to do with the operations. Right. So, I mean, it worked out. Um, anything that, 
and you mentioned, and just to kind of bring it back to the surface, you opened a restaurant, three other restaurants before this. And I think it's really important that if you want to open a restaurant and you have 30 or 40 years of experience working in a restaurant even, it, opening a restaurant is an entirely different beast than right. running a restaurant. So what key lessons did you learn? I mean, you've opened. I mean, you yep. currently have five or six locations right now as we was this week. <laughs> as we speak today, well, six. before COVID-19. <laughs> I think we technically have six right now. Six. Okay, but how many restaurants have you opened in your career because I was honestly losing track. It's a lot. I mean, if just from my own restaurant, from my my entities, um, do you want me to try to go through it? I mean, you can if you want. Just like you can like do, do, like a fast forward, like tap on each one just to get a, a perspective. The Lodge, Bin Five Fifty Five, Bin Five Fifty Five Dallas, Trey Trattoria where we're sitting today. Two Brothers Barbecue. It was in a different location. Okay. <laughs> so does that count twice? Yeah, I it am. does. <laughs> Actually. Okay, so Trey, Two Brothers Barbecue Market, uh, Insignia. Then Insignia transformed into Trey Downtown. Uh, Umai Me, which was Bin 555's transformation. Then that didn't work, so that became Trey Inoteca. Um, Shuck Shack. Bin Tapas Bar, which is now Alamo Barbecue. Um, and I think that's something to touch on, like to circle back around. I'll let you do that. <laughs> I'll of try. Like, of, the, <laughs> of, convert, of, of converting the restaurant. Yeah, that, that is actually, I'm happy you're going there because it was on my radar. Uh, and then um, I'm forgetting some, I think. So At I'm, least, I'm up to 14. Yeah. Let's yeah, just call it 16. It's, it's somewhere around I, 14 was the number I had in my head prior to it, but it's somewhere in that okay. range. Chispas, I left Chispas out. Yeah. So, I mean, I think one point is like you have a lot of, you know, home runs, right? And I think part of being a restaurateur is understanding that not everything's going to be a home run. <laughs> like, I, I feel like I'm like, I bat, I'm like batting 333. That's like, really that, good. That's how I look at it. Yeah. Like, if you're playing baseball, I'm, I mean, I'm still okay. good. I, I've had a, I've got an 18 year career batting 333. I'm probably not going to the Hall of Fame, but I've 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 had a happy career. It's a good analogy. I think you're doing well, or else I would not be here. Uh, that's for sure. So, I mean, I guess the, the dial back the idea of like, it's one thing to know how to run a restaurant. Yeah. It's another thing to know how to open a restaurant. Yeah. So, what advice do you have? I mean, reflecting back at your first restaurant, your first restaurant being number four, the fourth restaurant you opened. You've opened 14 restaurants since then. Knowing what you know now, if you could go back and open number one and two or three open again, over again, what would you have done differently knowing what you know now? I don't know that I would have done a whole lot differently at the lodge. If anything, I would have um, spent a little bit more money on um, functionality. What do you mean by that? Just, you know, we didn't renovate the kitchen all the way, but it was a financial restraint, and that's what you're always going to go into. What we feel like we have done in the last 10 years of our career is we specialize in, and I'm going to circle back around to the question, but we specialize in second generation or third generation spots. So we have never, um, like we've never, now the, the lodge was not a restaurant. It was a house built in 1929. So it was a pain in the ass to renovate and it was not built to be a restaurant. So, you know, a house built in 1929 does not have that great of insulation for air conditioning mm-hmm. and things like that. Um, we've specialized in second, third generation places because that's where you save your money. And my father-in-law's famous quote, he always, always used to say like, you make your money 
before you open the doors. Like that's where you're going to make your profit. What? So it's before you sign your lease because if you sign a bad lease, you're already losing money. Yep. And I've learned that lesson way too many times in my yep. career because you get bought into the. Um, but second generation is where you make your money. You're not paying. $30,000 for uh, a brand new vent hood that what it's going to cost you and the Ansel system and you know um all XYZ yeah. the the grease trap and the da, 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 every expense so when you first asked me a question like what what does it take to open a restaurant where do you start to open a restaurant like to me is like start at your toothpick holder and go up right because what happens is most people start at the top and go down Right, so you think, okay, I'm gonna have the nicest range, and dude, uh, I'm loving this right now. You know, I, I want, you know, I want the top of the line steam table, or I want the, you know, the greatest ventilation system. It's like, no, start at your toothpick holder and build it up. I mean, I think I'm pretty sure I know what you're saying, but what what do you mean by start at your toothpick holder? Well, because there's you you kind of the way you preface like it's a lot different to run a run a restaurant than it is to open a restaurant. And if you don't start your toothpick holder, there's a lot of shit you forget or you run out of money by the time you get there. Yeah. And, you know, it, you know, what are your sugar caddies going to be? What are your, all the little things that you've never opened a restaurant before that you just can't possibly fathom that are, that your expenses. Yeah. And then that's where you end up becoming so far over budget at the end because, um, and then you don't have to have everything shiny and new. I mean, like I use sheet trays as an example all the time. You can find sheet trays at auctions for a dollar a piece. Yeah. Or you can go buy a hundred of them for five dollars. And by the way, after the first fucking time, you pop them in a convection oven, they look exactly like the ones that are one dollar. Yeah. And nobody gives a shit at all that your sheet tray wasn't brand new. So you just spent $2,000 on something you could have spent $50 on or a hundred dollars on. That's money you're never going to get back. Yeah. I might be crossing a line here, but I'm going to go anyway, just in case the answer is yes. Do you have a checklist that you use to make sure you're not missing every anything every time you... You uh, open a restaurant. I had I had one that I used um, for years. Okay, but I think now we're so. Good. Do you still have it? Uh, I probably have it in a file somewhere. Would you yeah. be willing to share it? Yeah. Oh, I'm I mean, so it's just, happy it's I just went a, there. It's just an Excel. <laughs> it's just an Excel. Yeah, but like it's just an Excel. There's so many program. little things that we just don't think of, and yeah. you have so much experience. Just not. Whoops, I didn't think of that. Add it to the list, yeah. right? And we can. The whole idea of this show is to compound on those who to stand on the shoulders of giants. Like right. we can choose to, to to be ignorant and start from nothing, or we can learn from those who have come before us and start from, from the learning from the mistakes right. they made. Right? Sorry, I just no. Uh, I, I had to at least take a swing at that. No, I'm happy I mean I, I, I think it's good information, and I think it, I'd yeah. be happy to share it. Yeah, thank you so much. So I mean. So this idea that uh, I kind of got totally sidetracked because I was afraid to ask that question, not going to lie, but I'm happy we, we did. Um, when I, Listening to you talk, the, the, two, the two phrases that came to my mind when I think of second and third generation is one, be someone's exit strategy, two, turnkey operations. So if you can just move in and maybe you have a concept that's been like floating around in the back of your mind, you're like, well, this kitchen is literally set up for exactly that. I can just move right in right. turnkey operation the second idea with uh, being someone's exit strategy you make your money before you ever sign the lease sometimes people just want to walk away from a situation and if you can be there the light at the end of their tunnel and just let them get away from the situation right. like, is that has that ever happened with you um we have never taken over anything from somebody that was still in business okay. but we've come close okay um and um but I agree. I agree completely. I don't. I think your sentiment is is right on. And gotcha. You know, at the end of the day, 
you're running a business. You got to get out of your own way sometimes. And that's where second generation spots are so critically important for especially young chefs um, that don't, you know, I stress a lot of times to chefs that can save, if you could save $50,000, you could own your own restaurant if mm. you're smart about it. Um, if you had $50,000 right now, how would you go about opening your own restaurant? You immediately just get on the, in the car and drive and look for the locations that are already built. Twist that mic up for me a little bit. So you get, say that one more time. You're going to drive around town and try to find locations that are for lease. Okay. Um, and then you realize that it's okay to start small and build into it, you know, and it just goes back to what we're saying. Everybody wants the bright red, shiny new car. Yeah. And the second you pull that car off the lot, it's lost X amount of value. Yeah. You know, there's a correlation there with restaurants that, um, again, you don't need to spend $300 on chairs. Your guests, quite frankly, if you're not trying to be a Michelin starred restaurant, which you're not, um, they don't give a fuck. Yeah. And the truth is, like, it, it, it's good to have a vision. It's good to have an aiming point of where you want to be someday. But you also have to realize that you don't get there overnight and that it starts from where you can. Right. <laughs> right? And that's what I'm picking up from you. I love yeah. it. Uh, any other lessons from the early days? Uh, I know that you, like, the, 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 the saying you have in, in, on your website is that, you know, you were a chef that couldn't, you know, get all these ideas out into one restaurant. So you had to become a restaurateur. It's kind of the sentiment, right? Is that so, what our PR department wrote? <laughs> something like that. But you, you know what I mean? Like the idea is like, how, the question I have for you is how do you go from being the chef to, of one restaurant to a restaurant tour of six restaurants? Um, everything that we have done, even till this day is happened completely organically. We have never once said, you know what we're going to do? We're going to open a restaurant this year. Um, the lodge would, would probably be the exception, right? Your first restaurant. Yeah. The second location, um, somebody called us, said, Hey, we got this location. You should come take a look at it. We were four years into it. We were doing well. We said, Oh, we've always, so it's always happened organically. But the second part is that is we've always felt that we've up to a certain point, I guess, yeah. but I guess there's still something to be said. It's, it's accurate is that we've always just tried to open restaurants that a, we wanted to eat at that the market didn't have and um, trying to fill a void. Mm. So if you look at Bin 555, it was a small plates wine bar that we opened, I think, in 2006. Um, there was not a small plate restaurant in San Antonio in 2006. There wasn't a wine bar focused restaurant in 2006. And we said, these are the places we would have eaten at every night in San Francisco if we still lived there. So we we opened it. Um, then uh, Trey Trattoria, there was not a restaurant that did fresh pasta every day on all pastas. Sure, you could find a chef doing a ravioli or maybe a tagliatelle, but there wasn't a pasta-focused restaurant that made pastas in-house every day. Uh, and we and really, I always tell the story that I opened that restaurant because I wanted a good linguine and clams. Okay. Is there ego involved in that comment? Yeah, I guess it could be looked at that way, but it was just a simple, that was my... You couldn't find it, so you knew that it was, was a void. That was my truth at the yeah. time. Uh, Two Brothers Barbecue Market, we didn't feel like there was a Central Texas, or not Central Texas, more South Texas, Luling and Lockhart style barbecue place in San Antonio at the time. Um, 
And so we didn't open Two Brothers Barbecue to be chefy. We wanted just a kick-ass barbecue joint. Shuck Shuck. There was no lobster roll in San Antonio available every day. Um, Andrew Weissman did one at the Sandbar, uh, but it wasn't available every single day. So, you know, for us, it was just kind of like, what are the type of things that we like to eat? Um, And then you, again, it would be... Uh, range is a great example. I never sought to do a, a steakhouse on the Riverwalk. You know, they called us and after Luke left and said, hey, we got this great spot. You want to come take a look at it? We looked at it. We're like, it's impressive. Okay, what's the deal look like? Okay, let's negotiate this. Let's look at it. Second generation spot. Yep. Um, it's all happened organically. So the, the big thing I pulled from that last tear you went on as far as a lot of people will say, you got to do what you love or else you won't have the endurance to show up every day. Right. A lot of people say you got to give the, the market what it needs because you can't just expect the people, the, the everybody else to like what you like. But what you're saying is you got to almost like a Venn diagram. You got to overlap the two circles and you got to find out when what I love also is what the market needs. Did I hear that right? Yeah. I mean, I think there's something to be said about that. Okay. And I don't know that the way I'm doing it's the right way. I mean, it probably would be a lot smarter for me just to keep opening barbecue restaurants. Yeah. You know, and, but that's at this point in time, that's not what our passion is. You know I mean? We're working on a deal right now. That's going to be kind of a Mediterranean vegetable kind of driven concept that, um, we're trying to negotiate and, uh, it's a cool space and it's, I think, going to be a badass place. And San Antonio doesn't have that particular type of food right now on, on maybe the chef-driven level. So um, it just happens organically. Yeah. And it's like I don't – and I just try to roll with it. Yeah. And, and maybe, you know, we always kind of like, man, is this how we're going to live our lives for the next five years? But um, And maybe that's how my grandma ended up doing yeah. it until her 90s is that she's like, all right, well, I'm just going to do it you know, cause this is what I'm doing and I'm okay with it. So we're constantly trying to evaluate that and, yep. and have some self-reflection. But at the end of the day, the, the snowball's going down the mountain and we can't stop it. So we just got to kind of roll with it. Yeah. There's three things I want to definitely talk about before we go into the speed round. Uh, the first is I want to understand what the secret to op- operating and scaling organically is. Secondly, I want to know, you know, a lo- there's a lot of, uh, concepts that you've had to close, but you, you, retain the space so you can try different things. I think there's probably a few lessons there. And then I want to know what your, your plan is for the future. I want to make sure we cover those three things. So I'm just getting them out there. So we make sure we're intentional. So what is the secret to scaling organically? And when, from my understanding, when you say organically, you're just letting the opportunities come to you. What is the secret to get, getting those opportunities to come to you? Um, saying no. Okay. You know, it's, it happens so many times And, and listen, I've done it too many times myself is that, I fall in love with a deal and it wasn't the right deal. It was a stupid deal. And you know, but it's easy to fall in love with a space and then trap yourself in a bad deal. You have to have a good deal. I'm a much more fortunate restaurateur now than I was five years ago, 10 years ago. You know, I mean, I signed some really stupid shitty deals. I mean, our third restaurant that we opened was a bin 555 concept in Dallas. And we got fucking destroyed because we signed a really, really bad deal. And um, then the housing crisis, you know. What made the deal bad? I'm just curious. Too high of rent, a really piece of shit landlord that was not there to help on any level when anything needed to be done. Um, We let a motion take over. um, And it was just a bad deal. 
gotcha. and and, it, and we paid the price for that. But that also is what made us much better restaurateurs. It it made us go, hey, you're not that hot shit, you know that you, you don't think know you until are. you know. <laughs> and uh, but it made us smarter financially. Yeah. It changed the way that we uh, purchase and and those type of things. And um, so. You just have to be able to walk away from the deal until you are 1,000% sure that it's going to be a good deal yeah. for you. And it, I see it all the time with, with my friends and my chefs are like, oh, my God, what did I do? I'm paying $9,000 a month. I'm like, man, that's a lot of money. Like, how are you going to get that? You know, that's a lot of mouths to feed. Like, every day you have to be doing X amount of covers. And, you know, people, what happened is, and, and I just had a conversation this week with, like, a financial, like, not my banker, but with somebody else. And I was like, listen, they were asking me some about projections. I'm like, projections don't mean shit. Projections are numbers on a piece of paper that do not mean shit. Because what happens is you, your bank asks you to fill out projections. You fill out the projections and you know what you immediately do? You buy into them. Mm. You look at them and you're like, oh man, if we're doing two and a half turns every night, da, 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 we're going to be doing this. And our bottom line and our after our P&L, we're going to be making $380,000 a year. I'm like, no, no you're fucking not. Yeah. Because you're not doing two and a half turns. You're going to yep. do um, one and a half turns. And on Mondays, you're going to do three quarters of a turn. So you have to if people take anything away from what i say like do not believe projections on paper they're just projections on paper yeah so i mean i guess the was there a lesson there like whatever you think the you're going to do maybe be a little bit more conservative so you over exceed the expectation it's always the cliche be like oh whatever your projections are believe it's going to be half yeah and if you're not doing that you're lying to you, you you're not being realistic and it's funny because Restaurants, sometimes people just catch lightning in a bottle. Yep. There's a lot of restaurants that are just crazy, crazy, crazy busy. And there's no real explanation for it. You know, the food's average and the service is, eh. but sometimes you just catch lightning in a bottle and that's an amazing thing yeah. to do. But it doesn't really, I love when people try to like relate to that. Like, oh, well, look at what they're doing. I'm like, yeah, that's don't base that off of anything yeah. because you're setting yourself up for failure. Yeah, one of the things I love to say, uh, the more I learn, the more I, the more I realize I don't know anything. And uh, one of the cliches, like one of the, the things that, like, or the 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 examples that we always hear, like, just say yes. Like, you always got to say yes. Just like whatever opportunities, just say yes. Figure it out. But at the same time, you always hear, be, you know, there's another saying that I love that everything you say yes to is something else you have to say no to. Right. Because you can only do so much. Yeah. So I think it's situational. When you're young in your career and you're just looking for opportunity, like. And you, and you can fall on your face and get back. And you just say yes, like do things. But once you start getting to a point where you have something of value, you've got to be really intentional with what you choose to give your energy to. Um, so it's kind of like, it's one of those situations where like it depends. But I, do you want to reflect on that? Yeah, well, I mean, like for us, like we've, I mean, we get pitched every deal in town, right? Yeah. I mean, let's just, let's be realistic. Yeah. By all the major developers. Um, and we'll look at every deal. I'll look at every single deal because you don't, you, you learn from them. You know, you learn what is the market asking for? What are they willing to give and blah, 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 blah. But it's amazing. And, and I do think we, the industry was already starting to change. COVID is certainly going to continue to accelerate that. We'll get into that. Is sure. that the, um, the power is going to come back to the restaurants a little bit, you know, I hope so. the rent structure has got to come down. Um, for new places. I'm not talking about the quirky little 
small house on on St. Mary's Strip that yeah that you know that's an affordable place but it's you know it has grit and it has I'm talking about the rim you know of these chefs that are going to go out there and they're just going to get eaten alive yeah because they're paying too much in rent their their triple nuts are too high um and that scares me for a lot of a lot of people mm-hmm. and it's a lot different when it's a corporation that has 50 restaurants and they can kind of balance that number out over 50 restaurants but you know um saying no is very powerful absolutely yeah and uh, and asking for what you want yeah knowing what you want and saying hey i'm not uh, yeah this is what it's going to take for me to do a deal here um if you want me great if you don't want me that's okay too i'm not going to lose it i mean now listen it took me 18 years to learn that lesson but i mean there's plenty of deals that i've done that i wish I would have walked away yeah. from. And we promised a little nugget on how to, to use one space and, and to interchange restaurants in and out of that space. Any nuggets on that regard that isn't maybe as common knowledge? Um, I think uh, my advice there is, I, and this is what I learned, probably the main lesson I learned from my restaurant in Dallas, is that we knew it was dead. And by dead, I mean it died and we kept trying to bring it back to life and just kept trying to resuscitate it and just kept pumping more money and more money and more money. And it was fucking dead. Mm. And it wasn't coming back to life. And um, that taught me when it's dead, you bury it. And then you can try to do something else because you have a better chance of surviving as a different concept as you do as the one that's already dead. And you have to make that decision very quickly so that you don't, just dump money because when do you know it's dead and i think i cut you short if you want to finish that no, train of thought. I, I don't know that i think it's i don't want to be too morbid you just fucking know yeah it, it, it it's not all of a sudden a new a new dish isn't going to bring it back to life changing the font on your menu and and happy hour isn't going to bring it back to life it's either alive or it's dead and when it's dead you have to say listen this restaurant is not going to turn around and I have to shut it down and try to reclaim it, refurbish it, whatever. And, you know, it, we did – it's an investment. It's a risk. Um, I mean, if I look at, like, say, Bin 555. Bin 555 was open for nine years, and I just was burned out on it. I just – it didn't matter how badass food we were doing. People ordered the same six dishes. And I was like, I can't cook these six dishes anymore. I personally just was so burned out on it and converted it and – did what I think is the coolest restaurant we've ever done with some of the best food we've ever done, if not the best food. And San Antonio just said, this restaurant sucks. We don't like it. And we don't like your location and we're not coming. And so, but we already had a lease. And so it's not like we could go anywhere. And we said, you know what? Trey's a brand. It's a good brand. And we called, you know, change it to Trey and Oteca. And it did four years as Trey and Oteca. And it was just a matter of saying, okay, slap some new lipstick on that baby. And uh, let's, you know, any advice on how to get away from the previous concept stigma that might be tied to a space? I don't think it matters. I, well, sure, are there certain areas or certain buildings? But at the end of the day, if your food is good and it's consistent and it gives value and the service is good, you I, have a chance to I turn mean, it around. I think the personal brand is what you need. like Not the brand of your restaurant, right. but like the, it's a Jason Dady restaurant. Right. We know Jason Dady right. knows how to do food. Well. Like This one just missed right and if your brand is has more presence than a concept which i hope right, it does right. then you can sh- you should be able to recover in you my you hope so yeah you know and it's not always the case i mean but it's also was it 
what is the rent structure? Is your lease almost up? Is it, you know, do I invest in, do I, am I having to sign another five-year lease to, to re, it's a complicated, it's a complicated situation because if you're losing your ass already and then you have to reinvest into repainting new artwork, new this, new that, um, yeah, certainly it's a risk, but I guess if anything, the, the lesson to be learned is when the restaurant is dead, it's dead. Don't keep pumping money into it because that's where you really lose your ass. And I mean like long term, it mm. takes you years to come back from that. Of Instead of pumping an extra $75,000 into something, it would have been better just to shut it down yeah. and tell the landlord, I'm sorry. And then you deal with it from the legal side. Yeah. Okay, so COVID-19. Obviously, we got to give our uh, listeners some advice on how... Um, I don't want us to talk so much about how to react. I feel like the time to react is over. Yeah. Uh, hopefully, we don't get hit with another blindsided pandemic. I mean, it's always possible. But I think what's more important with our time right now is what's your plan for the future? How have you adapted and how can we learn from what you're going into the future, what your plan is to go into the future? I think what it did for us is it force us to do things that we were talking about doing for years mm, like what um you know we have a commissary kitchen a kind of our um that we do commissary prep work um and catering out of our catering company is pretty prolific which we talk about six restaurants but our catering company is equal revenue of, of the restaurants and so um but we've always wanted to do these home delivery meals we were like listen we have a brand you know we can put together meal packages that we can deliver to people's houses and it was always just a topic of conversation. So um, we immediately realized, okay, this is the time. This is the testing ground. Um, and it'll be a, a, a part of our future forever. I mean, it'll be something that people can order online from us anytime and deliver straight to their house and drop it off at their front door. So that for us was, I think, a, a lot of what we got out of, quote unquote, got out of yeah. it, what we, um, and then just the overall efficiency of takeout and to go that maybe, you know, and it's a very delicate question because restaurants are built to be restaurants. They're not. Del- they're not built to be delivery portals. And so, how do? And that's what we're dealing with here at this restaurant in particular. Is you know, during the shutdown, we did only takeout. We didn't shut down completely. We kept our management team on 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 staff, and we just did takeout. Now we're reopening. We still have a lot of takeout. Yeah. Well, you're now you're busy in the restaurant, and then you're just as busy on takeout. How do you navigate that from ticket times? Uh, so when you do open up again, are you going to be overwhelmed? Are you going to get absolutely, or and are the people that are sitting down in front of you that you're facing pissed because it's taking twenty extra minutes because you have four to go orders in front of their ticket and they don't see the guests, so they're like, "You're not even fucking busy," and you're like, "Well, I know we're not busy in here, but we actually have a bunch of order, you know." Yeah. So it's a it's a delicate, and we're still navigating that. But yeah. but to answer your question. That's the future is figuring that out and keeping it a part of the everyday business. So obviously we're figuring it out, but what do you think if you had to take a stab in the dark, what, what's your approach going to be in, in executing? Um, limiting the amount of to go orders versus the guests that are in your restaurant. To me, taking care of somebody in front of you um, takes president over um, somebody sitting in a car out, outside. That's so. what will bring them back. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. And if um, and if but you have to have your team trained and, and organized to say, hey, we've got one hundred and fifty on the books tonight. Yeah. We need to turn off online ordering yeah. tonight, you know, and be able to, to do that. Yeah. And I see Aloha blinking around in the background here. So I'm, did you have to uh, add on any features to Aloha to be able to uh, accommodate more online ordering and delivery or how, how has that experience been with Aloha? Um, 
not my department. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> That's more my wife's department. Um, I know that we have toast at most of our locations or we have transitioned to toast mostly in most of our locations. And a lot of that is because of the, um, the efficiency of the portal from that specific avenue versus what we're getting right now with Aloha. Was that a transition you made recently because of COVID-19 or was it in place before COVID-19? Uh, both. Okay. Both. Yeah. I mean, I know that we've changed like two bros. We changed during the, pro- yeah. or we're in the process of changing from Aloha to, um, toast for specifically because of that yeah and uh just another reminder guys toast is uh offering us a special deal there we're doing our first ever cpa cost per acquisition sponsorship so if you guys are interested in toast please use our link toasttab.com slash unstoppable you'll get one month free service three months of delivery and online ordering and 50 percent off implementation and we're going to split our commission with you uh it's 2500 after taxes we're gonna send you a check for a thousand dollars for saying thank you to use our link please let us know if you use our link, because we're technically not allowed to know when you use the portal. So like, tell us so we can like make sure that we send you that check for a thousand dollars and just, just say thank you. And we'll say thank you back. All right, cool. Um, moving on. Uh, is there anything we have not discussed up to this point that you would like to get out before we go to the speed round? No, I think we've nailed it. You've done awesome. One more question. I ask all my guests before the speed round, the mission statement is to inspire, empower, and transform the industry. How have you transformed personally over the past 20 years? How have I transformed? I think that I've just become far more aware that it's important for your staff to be happy outside of work, for them to be happy inside of work. I love it. And um, it's a hard transition. But, um, you know, we just try to listen and we try to um, educate ourselves and we try to make sure that there's a lot of options out there, and that's kind of what we try to tell everybody. It's like we know that any single person in this restaurant could walk out of here today, cross the street, and get hired immediately because they've worked for us. Um, and um, But we want to retain those people, and so we have to work a lot harder at that. I love it, man. Great conversation. One more break to thank our sponsors, and we're going to bust out a true speed round to respect your time. You hear me say it all the time on the show. This industry is all about relationships and people, but... Even though you might be geared towards relationships and people, you still need to know your numbers. And if numbers is not your thing, I got to tell you about this book, QuickBooks for Restaurants, a bookkeeping and accounting guide by Zach Weiner. This is the back office restaurant accounting guide you've been searching for. Zach Weiner covers accounting fundamentals, including sales tracking, purchasing, bill paying, invoicing, managing day-to-day liabilities, gift certificate tracking, cash management, detailed reporting, and so much more. Ultimately, Zach shows owners and operators how to create the accurate financials and reporting that will enable them to make better informed data-driven decisions. To learn more and to get Zach's book, head to zachweiner.com slash unstoppable. That's Z-A-C-W-E. I N E R dot com slash unstoppable. And because you are restaurant unstoppable listeners, if you use that link, you will save 50% off a one on one consulting call. Yeah, that's right. What are you waiting for? We're back. And the first question I have for you is what is your it factor, a habit, a trait, a characteristic you believe most contributes to your success? Drive. Drive. What is your biggest weakness? trust Ooh, i mean I, that's a tough one how do you i honestly i would say the same exact thing i tr- I, I have trust issues so how do you overcome that give I me look, some personal advice i think i think for me when i think of it what is my biggest weakness is trust is that 
I trust that you're going to do it the way that we expect you to do it. Mm. And that's a, that's a, a follow-up and training issue from, from our behalf. Okay. Got you. Does that Uh, make sense? Yeah. Yeah. Like, it's like, I trust you that, you know, I, we have a saying and I think it's an important saying and I got it from, uh, uh, saying union in LA, uh, from my father's, um, what's it? My father's daughter or my father's office, whatever his place is called. He says, Hey, put that over there. And I, and we, I would say almost that's like our second mantra is like, Hey, put that over there. Nobody in your restaurant knows what that is and they don't know where over there is. Mm. And so if you want shit done right in this business, you have to say, take that cup right there and go put it on that shelf on the second one on the left-hand side. Yeah. Because you, nobody knows what that is and they don't know where over there is. And so I think a lot of times I fall into the things where I don't tell them to put that over there or, or I tell them to put that over there versus being more specific. Yeah. I think it's just adopting the mentality that if somebody's not doing something wrong, the first reaction should immediately be why what what did I do wrong to make them not do it right? When right. you take that approach, then you can start to that's when your your operations manual starts to come alive because you just slowly start to feed into it and everything gets it's covered. I Absolutely. love that. Uh, what is one question you ask or thing you look for when you're building your team? Um what's the one question I ask? Uh, we always say, what's your best meal you've ever had? Mm. Um, just because I'm curious. It, is it lowbrow? Is it highbrow? Is yeah. it grandma's cooking? Excited. Is it, um, it tells you a lot about somebody. And I love it. It's a great question. What's your biggest challenge today aside from COVID? Or you can get into maybe something relative to COVID. Um, no, I, I mean, I think it's just, um, it's finances. It's, you know, COVID, if, I mean, if I was to tie COVID into it at all, it's COVID has exposed how fragile this business is yeah. and how money in, two money weeks, out. three weeks, four weeks could cripple an entire industry. And so finances are always a struggle in this business and, um, you have to take it serious every day. Yeah. And, and that's one, I'm going to give a book, a plug right now, profit first. And it's this mentality of you got to take profit first and profit isn't your paycheck. Profit's the money that you're putting away that you never touch in case of an emergency or in, if you're investing in another asset. Right. right? Um, and again, assets are things that make you money. So uh, it's a great book. I'll link to it in the show notes. Uh, profit first. Uh, what is one code of conduct or behavior you teach your team. So this is a core value, a way to be, a way to act. Um, to ask for help. What is one uncommon standard standard of service you teach your team? So this is something that's standard within the four walls of your business, but not standard throughout the industry. Um, over season. Mm. I like it. Um, what is one book you feel restaurateurs don't... Actually, I got to go back to that. What do you mean by overseas? I don't want to assume I know what you mean. Be aggressive, like, with flavor. Okay. Be aggressive with your um, um, your personality. Okay. Like, be um, genuine. Enthusiastic. Be yourself. Right? Like, I don't care if you have gauges or tattoos or I don't care. Like, come to work and love yourself. And yeah. if you love yourself and you love where you work. The guests are always going to have a great experience. I'm happy I went back to that. What is one book that's a must read to make us a better person or restaurant operator? Uh, I'm a big fan of uh, Tools of Titans by Tim Ferriss. Nice. What was one tool from that book that helped you the most? Um, I can't think of anything specifically, but I just love the different perspective of different people from around each. There's a lot of bullshit in there, but I think there's also a lot of 
good motivational stuff. I love it. Um, I'm gonna have to think about. I'm gonna have to go back now and be like, "What?" We got a question coming up that might help out with that, so we'll we'll give you a pass, or you can take it if you want. I'll have to think about. Okay. (laughs) Uh, Name one service you've outsourced to. So when I say service, I'm not thinking so much of a technology, but a person you go to to do a thing because they're better at it than you. Um. Services do we use? What's an example? An we don't. Ac- we, an we do designer so and accounting, uh, PR, uh, uh, marketing. Okay, so social media. Okay, so who do you yeah. go to? Uh, we have uh, a lady named Akila here locally um, that does kind of all of our everyday restaurant social media posts. Does she have a business that you know the name of? Um, Hot H A U T. I'm going to get in trouble that I can't remember the name of it. It's Hot. You remembered her name, which I think is more it's important. It's Akila. We'll um, find you. Akila Mendez. She's awesome. But they do all of our social media posts. So uh, we have a photographer that goes in all the restaurants, takes thousands of pictures. And then that way, every day, it's new, fresh photos yeah. based off of. I, I, I could never. You know, we used to try to get our general managers to, to handle that. And it just never works, you know, because yeah. then they're not running the restaurant. They're running a social media it's page. A, it's a role in the restaurant that needs to exist today. It's just, it, it has that much of a presence. And when you could, like, outsource to that, and, yeah. like, it, it's totally worth it, I Absolutely. think. Um, but this is episode four, sorry, 723. Head over to restaurantstoppable.com slash two, sorry, dyslexia, seven, two, three. And we'll link to whatever the name of her company is if, you, if you're interested and you're in the San Antonio area. And uh, the next question I have for you is, what is one thing that restaurateurs don't do well enough or often enough? Take time off. Yes. Uh, what is one technology you've recently adopted that's had a huge impact on your operation? Well, I think through COVID, probably the toast delivery systems. And w- this is the last question. It's a doozy. Get ready for it. Uh, if you got the news, you'd be leaving this world tomorrow. Yeah. All the memories of you, your work, and your restaurants would be lost with your departure. With the exception of three pieces of wisdom that you could leave behind for the good of our industry and for your legacy, what would those three pieces of wisdom be? Um, who am I giving this wisdom to? Um, Anybody and everybody? I would say the industry, or some people like to think they're giving it to their child because that's a little bit more sense. Like we should think yeah. of all as our children, right? Um. Be genuine. One. That's the most important. Um, find a hobby. Two. And uh, party. Three. Jason <laughs> Dady, this has been a great conversation, man. Uh, we wrap up every time by calling somebody out. I actually think that's how I found you over three years ago. We finally made it happen. Uh, who is somebody you respect, or two people you respect and admire and believe it would get, be a great guest mentor like you made for us today. If they were on the show, you would listen to the episode. Uh, Stefan Bowers, for sure. Um, one of my closest buddies, but he's so intellectual. And he's also like punk. Okay. Punk rock. And he, I'm jealous of his, his lack of filter. Um, I really admire that about him. We could him. have a fun conversation together, for sure. And uh, I would say... Somebody like uh, Peter Siepstein from the Cookhouse, um, or maybe Dele- uh, Diego Galicia from Michley. Also, uh, you know, smart guys that um, are grinding and are doing it the entrepreneur way, um, and you know, know they know they have very similar restaurant experiences that I, that I have of coming up on my own and 
and having to do it on their own. That's Stefan, Peter, and Diego. Look out, guys. I'm, yeah. I'm coming after you. I'd love to get you on the show. And uh, if we want to come join your team or maybe we're interested in learning more about you, your restaurants, what's the best way to connect? Uh, just jasondady.com. The, 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 the classic ego website name of just yourname.com. <laughs> Jason, thank you so much, man. It's really been a pleasure to sit with you, to share your story and your knowledge. There is no questioning. You are unstoppable. Thank you. Cheers. Yes. What a great episode. Thank you so much, Jason Dady, for coming on the show and sharing your story and your knowledge. Some big takeaways today. I think the big one, the, the obvious one is the power of organic growth. And when I think of organic growth, it's, it's in my mind, it's about doing what you're doing every day better than you did the day before and focusing on relationships and growing those relationships and making it about the, the opportunities that you're providing your community and those that work for you and just literally just putting the energy into what you got, not to what you think you need. Right. And when you do that, the opportunities come to you and knowing when to say no, because everything that you say yes to is something else you have to say no to. So ask yourself, do I want to do this thing and ask yourself, does my community need this thing? Is that the big takeaways we got from that portion of today's show and also being um, successful doesn't mean you have to be bougie as F for Christ's sakes start where you can get some secondhand stuff be scrappy uh, you know, tell a story behind it. Show people what you're willing to do to achieve your dream, and let them, and bring people in. You know, people love that stuff. Just start where you can, and then lastly, I think the big takeaway that came from today's show is this idea that it's never been easier to learn. There's information galore. The culture of the industry is changing. People realize that they have to teach you how to be successful in business if you're going to want to work with them. So take advantage of it. Ask questions. Push the envelope, and that's what restaurant unstoppable is in the process of doing right now we're pushing the envelope we're going to go back to our past guests our our super guests the people who made the biggest impact on us we're going to say hey come back on the show we notice that you're the best at this and we want you to teach us and my community uh this thing and we're inviting you to come on this journey with us once a week we're going to be inviting a past guest on the show and we're going to have a live workshop with this person you're going to join us live for the actual interview and you can ask your questions and be a part of the community of people coming together to transform our industry to share knowledge and to recognize that we're stronger together if you're interested in being a part of this and you want to join the conversation literally you will be on the show you will ask your questions to our guests Sign up today, restaurantunstoppable.com slash network. Be a part of the community. Don't hesitate. Peace.